0: Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast this week on Hip Dysplasia Awareness Week in conjunction with PAO Buddies and Miles for Hips we are doing a special podcast today with the Hippie Psych aka Ali Tonks. Thanks for coming on. Hi thanks for having me so really excited to delve into a little bit this week on chronic pain psychology behind it I know you're doing a little bit of um, work and research in this area at the moment so really excited to pick your brains on that but first I'm really keen to know your personal journey with hip dysplasia so could you mind telling us a little bit about when it first got diagnosed and your journey kind of leading you to where you are now
1: yeah, sure. Um, so my journey probably started around about 2013. Um, started getting hip pain from running. Um, that was my main kind of exercise that I was doing um, back at, when I was at university. Uh, so I saw quite a few uh, private physios multiple times. They all gave me very different answers, sort of tight hip flexors, or I need to strengthen my glutes and just kept on trying to follow their advice, but the pain um, was always dipping in and out. Um, somehow managed to run a London Marathon in 2016, wow. <laughs> despite yeah having issues with my hips throughout my training. So sometimes I would uh, plan to kind of go out and run 20 miles and would do a mile and it was just no, not happening today. Um, luckily some days I could manage to run Um, so after I did that you know I carried on planning further um, no more marathons but planned some kind of half marathons and different kind of runs and the training just was getting harder and harder to manage Um, so I went back to to my GP and I said this has been going on for quite a few years now Um, need to to have some scans I think and And they completely agreed and sent me um, to go and see a consultant and a specialist. So I had uh, x-rays and MRI, that was in 2017. Um, So I was about 26 at the time. And I was told there that I had mild hip dysplasia and early osteoarthritis. Um, So the kind of initial plan was to do some more physiotherapy um, and to try steroid injections. Um, so we sort of did that. The physio um, was kind of built up more strength um, and had the steroid injections, which helped for probably about two to three weeks. And then then the pain came back. So in May, 2018, um, sorry, I had labeled tears as well. Um, and FAI, uh, you have to help me all the longer words. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: So for anyone listening, if they're not familiar, FAI is the femoral acetabular impingement. That's the one. Um, so, yeah, so in May
1: 2018, I had arthroscopy surgery on my right side. So my right side, uh, I had the labelled tears, but the arthritis wasn't so bad. So we decided to start there um, because it had a better chance of preserving the hip joint. Um, I was told it would have about 80% success rate of lowering my pain on my right side. So we did that surgery, it all went quite smoothly, um, and the pain did kind of reduce on the right. So then the following year in May 2019, I then had an arthroscopy um, on the left and um, was told at that point that it was about a 60, maybe 70% chance that the arthroscopy would help there because the arthritis was more developed, Um, but they felt that it was worth it to try and preserve the hip joint. Um, I think a, a PAO was briefly discussed, but I don't think I ever really understood what hip dysplasia was. I kind of knew the term, And it it was often described as shallow hips. And I would kind of go and say to people, oh, I've got shallow hips. (laughs) But I I never really understood uh, the repercussions of what having hip dysplasia meant. So when they kind of spoke about breaking my pelvis, I kind of thought, "Mm, yeah, let's try the arthroscopy first. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that happened. I was put into a trial for a stem cell treatment um, for that surgery but I didn't know whether I would be in the treatment condition or the uh, control group so um, didn't know whether I'd get the stem cells or not but had a 50 50 chance of getting them so it was interesting recovering from that one because I didn't know whether I'd had the stem cells or not um, and it wasn't until a year later that I found out that I was in the control group. So so I didn't get the stem cells, which is a shame looking back because I I didn't ever kind of get relief from that surgery. Um, worked really hard with the physio. And after kind of about six months, they said, you're really strong, but you're still in pain. So there's not really too much more that we can do. Um, and so for about the last year now, um, just been speaking to multiple consultants. I think I've spoken to about three in the last six months that have all got quite different ideas about what to do with me next. Um, and they're not too sure. Um, so the the hip dysplasia is too mild for a PAO to be considered. Um, the arthritis is not quite developed enough for them to be saying that we're at hip replacement point. Uh, so one, I think, is quite happy to give me hip replacement, but the others are saying, no, we need to preserve this joint for longer first. Um, so they're also talking about subchondroplasty, right? Um, which they've described to me as like a, a cement or liquid bone that can be injected into the joint that would then harden and kind of fill fill the gaps there where the arthritis has caused holes in the joint. So at the moment, they're kind of fighting it out, I think, between the subchondroplasty and the hip replacement. So it's several consultants that are all communicating with each other. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all part of the the same, um, the same hospital and yeah, working together. I think they've got a multidisciplinary team soon that I'm on the list for them to discuss. <laughs>
0: It's cool, though, that they're not just sort of this is the answer. It's cool that they're going around the houses and they're really discussing, you know, which is going to be the right option for you. As with what you do um, you know, trying to be a psychologist. Yes. Um, So is that quite interesting for you from your perspective with your professional work to have a look at the way that they're deciding all of this, how it's influencing your life um how does it feel with your professional and your personal life coming together like this?
1: Yeah, it is interesting. And I feel like two consultants particularly have very different approaches. I think the one that's pushing a hip replacement can kind of really see that I'm struggling at the moment and that I've, I've been in pain now effectively for about eight years and um think he's quite happy to, to go to that step to, make those changes Um, whereas the other consultant it was very much uh, just some kind of physical assessments that he did and you know I passed the test to stand on one leg for 20 seconds and um, he asked about my sleep and generally you know I'm in a bit of pain before I get to sleep but then I'm, I'm quite a good sleeper so as I said that I knew that would be kind of marking me down for hip replacement um, so I, I don't think he really was acknowledging kind of the impact on my mental health um, and actually after I'd had the, the left arthroscopy and I had failed I went back to my GP and I said I am really struggling please can you give me some more drugs and when I went in to see her I kind of just broke down into tears because I was really struggling with the pain and um, and she said, oh, yeah, it's quite common that you might be feeling depressed. And she offered me antidepressants. And and I said, well, I'm, this is so circumstantial for my hip pain. I know that if I can just get that sorted and get back to being able to have a, an active life, that I'll be fine. Um, so I didn't take her up on that offer. Um, and we tried um, some kind of different medical treatments in terms of drugs um which then cause stomach ulcers so um, so that that didn't go down so well but um but when I said that to to one of the consultants that yeah the GP thinks that I'm depressed about this and he's like yeah yeah it's not a surprise so and it it did surprise me that it just felt like it's just a, a common factor almost that that you will be um, and the, the NHS um, kind of criteria for getting a hip replacement is, does list on their um, depression um, as kind of one of the criteria. So so it is really interesting that, that they almost expect you to hit that, that rock bottom before they're going to consider giving you the treatment that perhaps you need.
0: So there's, there's so much that I want to kind of delve into from, from those statements that you've just made. And I want to kind of just come back to the, one of the beginning things that you said in this section was, you know, about what they're looking at objectively, um, in terms of like your physical strength and functionally what you're able to do versus your subjective assessment. So things that you're verbalizing that you're feeling about it. So, There's quite a big difference between the two. Like you said, you've really worked hard to get your physical strength and your functional ability as good as it can be. So from a physical point of view, you're doing really well and they'll probably look at you and say, yeah, do you know what? You don't meet the criteria to have a hip replacement right now. But from a subjective point of view and how you're feeling and how you're coping within your mind day to day is a very, very different story. So how does it feel to know that they're looking more at the objective than they are uh, than the subjective at that kind of stage of your journey.
1: Yeah, I think in a word it's, it's frustrating. Um, Yeah. It feels like a a battle to, to kind of get where you want to be. And I feel like you have to have so much resilience to, to keep going back and to keep saying, no, I do think I need this. Um, And it, it just feels wrong in a way but I kind of go to the next MRI and you hope that the arthritis has got worse um, just so that you can kind of meet some more of that objective criteria. Um, Yeah I have googled in the past how to accelerate arthritis (laughs) because you just think you know I am I am active you know I try to not eat too much sugar which (laughs) I find really hard Um, but you know, try to, to stay a healthy weight and things, but you do read things, um, you know, about how to slow down progression. But it kind of forces me to think well, what can I do to speed up so that I can actually, you know, get over this? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's frustrating and um, just feels like a continual battle that you need to, to really fight for, for what you feel you need.
0: So can I ask then, do you, do you feel like the, you need the physical demonstration of your pain to be more obvious to justify how you're feeling inside? Is that, is that kind of how it feels?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I'm, um, you know, very active person from, from five, six years ago, running all that distance and I would go out cycling, um, really regularly kind of We got up to doing 100 mile bike ride in a day and really long distance cycling trips so to to go from that to to now I go for an hour long walk in the fields nearby uh, at a weekend and and then I know that I'll be in quite a lot of pain for the rest of the day from doing that and I've been trying to do couch 5k again and I've sort of reached a point now about halfway through that where I just feel like the pain is not worth it anymore to to try and do that running but for me those activities are how I kind of release from a busy day being on the screen Um, so it's almost like a a double whammy double hit that you can't do those activities that you want to do to, to kind of you know, be on that more well-being, optimal side of, of mental health. Um, and in a way, that seems to be one of the reasons why they don't want to give me hip replacement. So one was saying that because I'm younger and I'm so active, I'm going to want a lot from a new hip. And and he was explaining that in comparison to to someone who's maybe in their 70s, 80s, they won't be wanting to do all the same activities that I will and so that's why they're thinking that I may not have outcomes that I want and why they're kind of holding back from giving me that now so um yeah it's tricky to to know whether that that is the case or or if it would kind of help me yeah I see a lot of people on Instagram that have had hip replacements and are out there doing these amazing things that I really want to do and that's really inspirational for me to see um, and to help me keep keep going with that fight and just hope that they get to that point um the consultants as well and and offer that surgery to me
0: I I I think from I I completely understand the concerns that you have and you know they're concerns that you know I have for myself personally as well and do my hip replacement in six years i think where they told me i'd need one by the time i was 40. so i completely understand the concerns about that and wanting to get back to that level of activity as well but like you i see so many people that are of a similar age to us that you know, are having these hip replacements, double hip replacements in their 20s, 30s, 40s and doing so, so well. So if you are listening to this um, and you feel like you could really use some extra inspiration and motivation, there are so many people um, that are on Instagram that are sharing their journeys at the moment. And, you know, if anyone is listening to this and has somebody that they really feel grateful for their inspiration um, for them, please just send me a message and I'll put these up on my Instagram so that people can find more people um to be supportive and inspirational to them because i really think it helps to see other people of a similar age activity interests hobbies doing the same things that you are so um yeah thank you for bringing that up and it's important that we have these people to to look up to and not only that but there are so many other different um processes and procedures that are happening with different materials for hip replacements and different you know methodologies different types of surfacing so fingers crossed things are going to start becoming a little bit more specific with different types of hip replacements for different levels of activity and lifestyle that people are wanting afterwards so really fingers crossed that everything's going to just continue to develop down those research areas so um, yeah fingers crossed for that
1: yeah, definitely. Um, and the the subchondroplasty um is, is really new and experimental and, and offers some hope for for maybe maybe me, maybe not, I don't know yet. Um, but there's there's no research that I can find about that procedure in the hip joint. Um there's some out there in knee joints, um, but it's kind of being explored in the hip now. So hopefully in another few years time they might know more about that and and hopefully that's a good option for those that like me kind of have that early arthritis but um yeah I'm not bone on bone yet so um yeah it's that another objective criteria that I haven't hit that box yet
0: <laughs> but also uh, like you mentioned you, know, you actually googled how do I accelerate my arthritis so mm. from a healthy mind as the focus of this week um how did that impact you trying to google ways to accelerate your arthritis to then justify that talk me through that that mind journey that in that time
1: yeah i think over the years my my mind journey it's just a, a roller coaster of emotions um you know i i've probably Done that googling at more a, a lower point um, where I've been a bit less motivated or kind of feeling like I want to to give up slightly with doing all the strength training that I do and and to go down that more positive side um, and you know I I don't have any plans to to attempt to accelerate the arthritis <laughs> but I think it's it just. Uh, is a really good example there of how how your mental health will you know everybody has it and it sits on a continuum and you can be a real optimal kind of positive functioning in your well-being um or you can be at, at the complete other end of the continuum where you'll perhaps have a continual low mood or depression or anxieties but you can be anywhere on that continuum and and it can go up and down day to day, week to week, um, and be impacted by all sorts of different things. Um, so I think through my training to be a psychologist, but also just just having a kind of basic awareness of what mental health is and what impacts it, it's helped me to kind of track how I'm feeling. Um, and I do find that quite helpful, um, just to monitor it and to kind of notice when I'm feeling really good, what helps me to stay motivated and to to stay on that kind of positive side. Um, and then maybe there are other things that that pull me down. And I think having an awareness of what those factors are um, are really helpful to to help you kind of monitor and to then make small adjustments in life to to try and stay you know, where you feel you would be best to be.
0: Absolutely. So I think again, maybe people that are listening to this might feel really reassured hearing you know, comments like that coming from you saying, actually, do you know what, it's okay to have those low moments. And it's really, it's important to, to talk about it, right? So if you're having those feelings, like I wanted to see how I can make this worse to justify it, you're probably not alone in thinking that there will be other people that are thinking probably similar things around, but because it's not talked about they then potentially feel like it's they're alone in that situation so thank you again for bringing that up to make people realize that it's okay to not be okay in your words prior to this conversation today so stemming on from that in the it's okay to not be okay i know that's something that you feel quite passionately about um, and how would you sort of describe that in the dealing with chronic pain because it's not easy
1: No I think it's it's not surprising for people to to have dips in their mental health kind of going through chronic pain it it's such a journey where you initially just deal with all this pain and don't have a clue what it is and then there's quite a long battle I know particularly for us hippies it can take a really long time to to get a clear diagnosis know what's happening and Then, when you reach that point you you might have different surgeries and you know you might hope that that's gonna work and then it doesn't um or complications for surgery um and you see quite a lot of stories on on instagram where you know things don't always go to plan and and i think it it's really important to acknowledge that that you are quite likely to to have dips in your mental health through through such a long difficult journey and just to to normalize that and and to know that hopefully everyone does have have support out there either from friends or family or going and see the gp and seeing if they might be able to offer talking therapies or you know different different ways there of helping manage that um, I've had a, a referral to I think a, a multidisciplinary team um, for pain management, which includes clinical psychologist. Um, so I haven't had that first kind of appointment yet, but I, I think there, there can sometimes or historically be a bit of shame in, in admitting that you're struggling. Um, and I think generally in society, there's so much positive work going out there now that, that it's okay if you're not. and. And it's okay if you need to go and speak to someone. Um, so I think it's just just important to try and get that message out there as as far as possible.
0: Um, so do you think it's a little bit more widely available now? So from a GP referral system point of view, because again, if I if I personally wanted to go and speak to somebody, I don't know whether my first approach would be to go to the GP. Um, you know, or whether you seek things out privately yourself. So, you know, you obviously you're here with me in the UK. Um, so perhaps you can speak to how best to get a referral, perhaps if um, that was something affecting you here. Like I said, I don't know what the processes are over um, in the US, Canada or Australia, That there are the main areas of people that are listeners of this podcast, but obviously anywhere in the world, what the systems are. But can you speak a little bit to that about referral systems? <laughs>
1: Yeah. So in the UK, um, there are definitely multiple ways. Um, so there's not kind of one single route into access. I think the GP is a good place to go as a as that single point. If you're not sure who to contact, then they'll definitely be able to signpost you to different ways. Um, but there are also ways of self-referral into talking therapies in England. Um, so if you kind of Google talking therapy, self-referral, then, then I'm sure websites would come up or or I can send you a link and we can put it put it in the, the intro. Um, and then there were kind of more informal support. So you know maybe you don't feel like you need kind of regular therapy or to go to quite that step, but there are charities out there. Um, so in the UK, there's the shout text line um, so you can text in the, in the number. And you'll be linked up with a trained counsellor that will just kind of check in with you, listen to how you're feeling um, and and kind of just help you get through that day or get you through those next few hours if you're at that point. Or, you know, Samaritans is a really good one if you want to verbally speak to someone. I know Versus Arthritis, they have a phone line as well during kind of working hours that do a, a similar service there. Um and I know in, in other countries, they have a similar um, text line service, but the numbers are kind of different for everywhere. So say so if that's something you think you might access, then um, then we can either put some numbers in, in yeah, with the podcast. Great. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have a
0: chat about that afterwards and get some of those numbers down um, for anybody to be able to, to access those afterwards. So thank you for that. Um, there was something else that I wanted to come back to you that you mentioned earlier, which was about working out your triggers for knowing what's gonna bring your mood up, what's gonna bring it down, recognizing when it is on the way up and the way down. So would you mind giving us a little bit more information about that triggers and awareness kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so I think it can can take a little while sometimes for you to get used to noticing those. And, and maybe in the moment you you're not in a kind of good state of mind to be able to notice what your trigger was. So I think it's quite useful just at the end of a day to kind of reflect back about how you've been that day and what's happened and and to see if that's made any change in your mood. Um, so having a journal where you can write some of those things down can be quite helpful. Yeah. Um, or you could kind of just give yourself a little score as to positive or negative mood um, and see where you you fall on that. And, um, yeah, I have in the past uh, put a timer on every day. So so it will go off at, say, eight o'clock at night. And as soon as it goes off, I just go and think, right, how am I right now and why? <laughs> why am I at that, at that point? And, yeah, I might say that I'm um, quite positive feeling, or but I'm I'm quite tired because I had a, a busy day, or or I might say that I'm I'm feeling feeling quite negative. I'm feeling a bit low and I'm I'm tired, or or I might be in a real positive mood and really be high high energy and feeling like I can go out there and do absolutely anything. So to kind of really drill down into how you're feeling. Um, and why and if you write that down and kind of track that over a long period of time then it can really help you notice all sorts of different things so when I did that I noticed that I was feeling quite tired quite often and you know upped how much sleep I was getting each night Um, or sometimes it can help you just notice actually I, I feel good more times than I thought I did Um, So it can really highlight kind of positive things as as well as what those triggers might be. And then once you've got those kind of patterns, then you can you can think, right, well, when I'm feeling good, what is it that I'm doing at that time? Um, And and then you can think, right, well, I know that if I'm sat in my pajamas uh, on the sofa, then then that helps me to feel good or taking a bath makes me feel good or painting my nails or having that chocolate by, <laughs> um, so you can you can work out what works for you because it's it's so personal for different people so I think it just it takes a little bit of effort um, to, to put that time aside to check in with yourself and then over time you can
0: work out what those triggers are for, for both positive or more kind of negative feelings yeah so I mean I guess there are so many different ways to to do journaling these days so aren't there so rather than just sort of the traditional notebook and pen you know there are so many digitized ways if that Mm. if that's what floats your boat right so yeah I know I've spoken to so many people that love to do a journal and they'll have like a double page for every day where they draw pictures and you know write down their emotions and things that have happened in like a diary type format And then some people that have literally just got like checkboxes, you know, for mood or pain level one to 10 or positivity one to 10 or, you know, different ways that you can track it. But you're right, it's such a personal thing to do. Mm. And you've got to find a way that you want to do it, right? Because if it's something that you really just, oh, I don't want to sit and write how I feel at the end of a day in a long paragraph, or the tick boxes feels too impersonal, you've got to find Mm. what works for you. Is that how you'd kind of explain it to
1: people yeah definitely I think there's so many different ways of doing it yeah there's some apps can be really amazing so it can collect data and show you things in different graphs and and that might be perfect for some people but other ways kind of putting those words out or drawing um is much better and in fact there is a a Research paper which I'm going to write up and, and put on my Instagram at some point, which is talking about the power of art um, for those that suffer with chronic pain um, and how art could really help help people to to adapt to their pain and and use it as a pain management kind of tool. So um, yeah, and it, it's really personal, but yeah, definitely there's there's all sorts of different ways that you can track how you're feeling.
0: That's amazing. So you mentioned a couple of apps. Um, are there any that you Either use or recommend um that you're familiar with that might give people just a start point to start looking into it
1: um so i I don't track on an app um so I prefer a sort of pen and paper and um and using different colored pens <laughs> and coloring it in that kind of way um so i I'm not the best to to recommend an app but perhaps if if anyone out there has some good ones that they can recommend to send in to us then we could. Uh, do a post about that that would yeah, be a great, be great thing to share
0: okay cool so yeah just let us know comment um or message either um myself or ali at the.hippie.psych um and we'll be able to pop those recommendations up for people that would be amazing um so the next thing i wanted to ask you about was a post that you put up um i think it was yesterday um on resilience factors in those mm. with chronic pain i thought this is an absolutely incredible post um and the, the list of things that are sort of criteria for determining that resilience I kind of thought maybe we could go through a couple of those points and just get your opinions on you know what they mean for different people and how um, that helps people to either cope better or learn to understand how they might be able to cope better in the future so um the first thing on this list of resilience factors was social support mm. yeah definitely
1: yeah and I you know, listening to, to other podcasts that you've recorded in the past, I know that social support has kind of been one that's come up quite a lot. So I feel like from our community, it, it's definitely one that would be relevant um, from my own personal uh, perspective my boyfriend is amazing um with the support that he offers me um and when I was in a low point you know he returned home with some ibuprofen and some flowers <laughs> so he he knew what I needed in that moment um and you know my friends and family are the same I think sometimes they, it can be hard to know what's best and what's needed um so I think again it's it's kind of acknowledging what support you've got out there but but letting people know what would be really helpful for you as well.
0: Yeah. And again, that's different for everybody, isn't it? And just working out what, what social support means to you, because sometimes it might just be being like, do you know what? I need my social support system to actually just back off and leave me alone. Or it might be that you really need them to be close to you, but it's not going to be the same for everybody. So just communicating with your social support system about what you feel you need and knowing that it's okay to get it wrong as well. Right. So you might think, I think this is what I need. So I'm going to tell you that I really want you to be here with me every moment of the day because that's what I need. Mm. But then being like, actually, do you know what? That really wasn't what I needed at all. <laughs> yeah. but being, being adaptable um, to what you feel like you need and just communicating that you're not going to know exactly what's right for you right now. It's okay to get it wrong. You need to experiment to see what feels right for you and to, to know what you need. But yeah, I think I think that's something that's really important with that social support is just communicating and knowing it's okay to get it wrong. Yeah. And I think what you
1: need will change every day as well. You know, sometimes I might just need a shoulder to cry on and another day I might need that person to say that, go on, just just go and get on that bike. (laughs) You can do it um so yeah I think I think again just tuning in with what what you need and communicating that to to other people and if it's not right again just to try have those open communication channels
0: brilliant and this next one was quite interesting for for me to see because it's something that I feel a little bit personally as well it's the refusal to give into the pain um from a psychology point of view this one's a real A real tester. So, uh, yeah, talk us through this one for me.
1: Yeah, so so this one, it was um, so these participants that had had chronic pain. um, They spoke about this in a sense that it was kind of like a value to them that they were not going to let this pain win over. And they spoke about it as if that was a, a personality trait that they had even before. They got this chronic pain, um, which I thought was interesting because I feel in some ways I've learned how strong I am um, through going through this. Um, and for these participants, they were they were saying that they they felt like they kind of had had that attitude even before this. So so when the pain came in, they just thought, right, I am I'm not going to let this uh, change how I live my life, and I'm just kind of going to get through it um so yeah it's it's an interesting one and again I don't don't really personally feel like you can have that attitude all the time you know I think you know i like to think maybe 80 90 percent I have that kind of attitude but I don't think it's realistic to think that you're gonna be having that attitude 100 percent
0: that's exactly what I was gonna ask you I was was gonna say do you feel like that's that's a good thing to have that I will not let it beat me or is it sometimes useful like you said to be a bit more flexible with how you're feeling and know that sometimes it is okay to give into the pain sometimes it's about listening to your body and what it's telling you it needs rather than that refusal to to give in and going through that journey to feel like it's made you stronger is fantastic but also we're not invincible And, you know, from a, from a mental health point of view, is it, is it a positive thing to say, I'm never going to give in or actually learning to listen to your body and be a bit more intuitive about it? Is that more helpful?
1: yeah i yeah i completely agree with what you've just said and this might be a really good point to say that what really interested me about this study was they they went to gps and they said right we want to find some people that have a chronic pain but are well functioning and i say that in kind of inverted brackets because what does that really mean um but they wanted to find these people that that going through pain in their everyday life but didn't have any anxiety or depression and reported low stress um, and they had kind of 60 people that these GPs recommended and sent them all these questionnaires to to test their anxiety depression and stress and they couldn't find anybody that <laughs> didn't show at least one of those things so so any you of know, these people were recruited because they were seem to be the most resilient again what does that really mean <laughs> but it just it really stood out for me that that again you don't you don't have to be resilient all the time and and just how common it is that if you're going through chronic pain that you are likely to to be having some difficulties in some areas of your mental functioning and that that's okay.
0: And I think a lot of people that do struggle with chronic, chronic pain have such an amazing way of outwardly not trying to show it right so it's really really difficult to spot that people are in pain because you get so good at hiding it and this was a conversation that came up recently um with somebody else that I've spoken to about how we lose that intuition with our body and we actually stop recognizing that we're in pain or stop recognizing the things that are going wrong because we're trying to cover it up so much by staying positive and staying functional and you know staying as outwardly okay as possible and trying to hide those things so how do you feel about those comments and how that relates to our chronic pain tolerance and management and
1: yeah I think it comes back to that kind of message that it's it's okay to to be struggling sometimes and to speak about that and you know, I think sometimes I, I've sort of posted things on my Instagram where I have been struggling. And sometimes the comments are, you're okay, you're fine, stay positive. And um, and it's lovely to to have support. And I know it's coming from the absolute kindest place, but sometimes you just need someone to say, Yeah, I hear you and and I feel you, and I, I'm with you on that journey, and to take you from, from where you're at and from a psychological kind of theory point of view if you don't acknowledge how you're feeling so if you are feeling of a really low mood and you're you're not addressing that and you're not thinking about it it's just going to continue kind of building up and and getting worse so so it's better if you can and you feel able to 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 try and acknowledge where you're at
0: so this isn't something that I plan to talk about at all, but it just, it seems so relevant. And I hope you don't mind me asking um, about this stuff, but do you feel like on social media, when people see somebody struggling, do you feel like it, it's kind of a bit of a social taboo to be like, do you know what, yeah, that's really shit, that sucks. And rather than, you know, it'll be okay. Do you feel like there's a social pressure to try and be uplifting on social media rather than just sometimes like you said being with people feeling what they're going through and just saying I'm with you and it's okay for it to be a bit shit
1: absolutely yeah I
0: think generally there is a
1: culture on social media to post your best bits and and your highlights and and to show that you're you're doing great and there are so many Instagram accounts that I follow that are trying to to move away from those kind of taboos and to to post about mental health or you know that it's okay to not be on a diet or be stick thin and that are really challenging all of those kind of social norms that maybe we've had since social media has really taken off and I try to post on my Instagram the highs and the lows and sometimes when I'm at a low I that's the last thing that I want to do so I won't always be posting that um, or I, I might Come back to it and do something the following day because I think it's important to show show that full range of emotions. Um, but I, I do think sometimes people look at it and and maybe they want to to think or to show that that they're fully in control and to kind of offer support and offer you advice. But yeah, sometimes it it doesn't always come back quite the the, the most helpful way, even though they mean it to be very well intentioned.
0: Mm-hmm so to so maybe the advice from from this then might be that say how you're truly feeling about that post rather than always feeling like you need to bump people up if you see a post and it resonates and actually just say how you feel about it and offer sort of that genuine support rather than you what you feel you should do
1: yeah yeah i think take take a person where they're at and and go from there rather than trying to to throw positivity at them because if if they're not in that place then that's not going to be helpful for them
0: that's really really good to know thank you for for talking (laughs) about that Um, okay so the next one on that list for um, resilience development is Mm. confidence for activity so is this something that is a confidence activity before you've had the pain during pain um, what what does that really mean
1: so the way that I interpreted this one was that um, despite having pain, you're still confident to, to do some level of physical activity. I think this one, um, it was quite linked in with getting kind of support from healthcare professionals as well, so that you could perhaps be guided to work out what um, what activity you were capable of doing. Um, and... I mean for me, when I first had had these hip pains, the first thing that I was told was to stop running. And and I did. And my mental health definitely took a dive then when I didn't have that outlet. And and to me, that was the main thing that I did. And I, I didn't want to do anything else. So I, I didn't for a long time. And and the pain did get worse. And I do feel now that I've learned to enjoy or I found new ways of moving that. I do find enjoyable um, so doing some some strength training at home and getting on the spin bike are ways now that I can exercise and and the pain stays relatively manageable um, and I think that gives me a huge boost you know my endorphins are, are going and and you feel like you could do do almost anything after a good workout session um, so I think what that um that resilience factor was thinking about was if you can find a way to still be physically active and be confident doing that then
0: then that can help your kind of daily functioning Mm. and I, I hear this a lot from people that get told that they shouldn't run or to stop running and I think and I've said this before and I'll say it again I just think there needs to be a little bit more clarity in what that really means from the people that are saying it you know is it you know, while you're in this level of pain, maybe reduce your running or reduce the intensity or maybe go out walking instead, or, you know, is it that they mean don't run again ever, mm-hmm. you know, and actually what that means for the health of your joint, you know, and like you've said, actually, from then a mental health point of view, actually, that can be more damaging than the physical risks of going out running for the degeneration in your hips. So, balancing that out between a mind and body connection you know those things are not separate they they have to be taken into account together um so yeah i just think that when people say don't run be clear about what that actually means and weigh up the risk benefit ratio for the whole of that person not just for the you know amount of inflammation or where that might increase in the hip i think that it's all got to be taken into a balance what do you think
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think there needs to be further explanation around it. Um, When I saw one of these consultants more recently, I asked about running, and he he advised me not to do it because it could take me quite a few days to recover from it, and that then it might stop me from, say, going out for a walk or then doing a strength workout the next day. And and that did make sense. um, And at the time, I thought. No, I'm just going to keep running because it gives <laughs> it, it gives me the joy, and I can. And it's that that I had that attitude that I'll put up with the pain and I'll get through it. Um, and I've since reflected that maybe um, I will kind of dial back on the running a little bit. Um, but I think I think it needs greater explanation as to why, and greater support to find an alternative. Um, you know, again, the same consultant sort of said, do some swimming. And there was no discussion around that, um, aside from the fact that all our swimming pools are closed at the moment, Um, but no kind of thought about whether I want to do that, do I enjoy swimming? (laughs) Um, But it was like swimming was the answer to all my problems, it was was the way he kind of presented it, so I think it it needs more more thought and discussion with the patient about what, what works for them.
0: Absolutely, that's really, really great. <laughs> yeah, go swimming, but it's COVID and all the schools are shut. So uh, <laughs> yeah. let's have that chat a little bit more. But uh, you know, unfortunately, the consultants don't have a lot of time. Um, yeah. You know, with the with the time that they have in the NHS, so that can be really difficult to to explore those conversations. But if that is something that you're worried about, you know, if that is something that's quite challenging for you in terms of your mind body connection, then if you have it as a direct question for your consultant, go in be strong that you have that question and ask them to take the time to answer it. Because if they know that that's a concern for you, they will address it. But if you don't put it to them in a way that shows that it's a priority for you, then with the time restraints that they have, they might not see that as a priority because you haven't let them know it's a priority for you. So just for anybody that's listening, please, if that is a priority for you, please ask the question directly, say that this is important to me. Um, and they I'm sure that they will take the time to to answer that more thoroughly if that's a concern so please put that forward
1: yeah yeah you know, you've just reminded me as well and alongside kind of going in with that list of questions I would just um, just like to to suggest that people if if you are struggling that when you go in you don't try and hide that from a consultant you know I had appointments before where he'd be telling me that they don't know what what to do next or that the next thing might not work and I was trying so hard to hold the tears in and show that I was strong that I left the appointment with him not knowing that I was struggling and also cognitively had not taken in anything else that he'd said because (laughs) my brain had just been thinking don't cry don't cry don't cry Um, so you know since I've kind of gone in and thought no if I if I want to cry then then I will and and that is how i've approached other appointments so i think that's another kind of just tip or suggestion to to share with people
0: absolutely so the next thing on this list for resilience was optimism and positive thinking which i feel like we've kind of covered to um to a degree um but how does that relate to the study so um
1: so with this study they interviewed them and just asked about kind of what was going on in their life and what they thought led them to to be this resilient (laughs) well-functioning person um and something that came up was having an optimistic attitude and positive kind of thinking um and there's a lot of psychological theory kind of beyond this study um that have shown um quite clear outcomes that generally if you're a more pessimistic person then you might have lower health um, in all sorts of different areas in your life so um, so I think this one can kind of be linked back to other research as well that generally if you are a more positive person then then you don't have as many adverse life effects um, and it kind of links into to a cycle where if you're having say negative thoughts then you're more likely to have negative feelings and that might get you into a cycle of different behaviors say for example not going out for your daily walk because you think oh it's not going to help me anyway and then you might feel feel more tired because you haven't moved so then you don't go out for that walk and then you perhaps will end up then with more more issues because you haven't moved all day Um, So I think that's an example of where a more pessimistic attitude can impact on what you're doing and can have impacts on your health. Mm -hmm. Um, So see, it can work in the opposite way around as well. So if you're more positive, optimistic or positive, um, then then you can hopefully have different feelings um, and, and engage in more actions that might lead to better health conditions. Um, obviously, that's a huge generalisation and, and it can't account for everything.
0: Of course. If, what if you um, are unsure where you lie in the positivity, optimism, negativity, pessimism kind of scale? Are there sort of like some scores and charts and um, scales out there that you can take some quizzes and find out where you lie? And also, is that a useful thing to do? I don't know of any quizzes. I'm sure there are some out
1: there um so yeah i could have a little look um if people would be interested in that i think it comes back to kind of checking in with how how you're feeling and also what thoughts are coming up um so uh, there's some people that that are really um positive about the impact that mindfulness can have um with chronic pain and a lot of that is about noticing your thoughts um so i think if you can tune in to also what your triggers are and how you're feeling but but what kind of self-talk you're giving yourself um so if if you walk out of an, an appointment are you saying to yourself oh this this isn't gonna work or um there's no hope here or or do you come out saying yeah that sounds sounds great I can't wait to to move on to this next step and uh, you know there's 80 percent success rate so that's brilliant and and hopefully it will work so kind of check in with with what things you're saying to yourself
0: yeah and maybe pop down in that journal that you're doing day to day some of the things that you've thought to yourself in that self-talk and whether that's been positive or negative throughout the day like mm-hmm. you said it's just always something to look back on isn't it and see trends and patterns happening um with your mood and then how that relates to to how you're feeling physically as well so Mm -hmm. that's really cool that it's all coming back to something that we've already mentioned and talked about with that um the next one was caring for others so what did that mean in terms of like whether you are more caring for others in your general day-to-day life that means that you're more resilient to cope with pain yourself so this was saying that if you
1: had other commitments or responsibilities then that could be a resilience factor or could help you have that attitude of kind of getting through the pain um, so it kind of included various things so it might be going out to work or it might be caring for a family um, and if you knew that you needed to do that then you would kind of be prepared to sometimes put that pain to one side and and just keep on going so that you could maintain that care or your commitment for other people
0: that's really cool mm. and what about the management plan um that's the next one down in the in the list for building resilience
1: so i think the management plan was thinking about um just how you could go about um thinking about how you would get through kind of how you would get support from other people um making sure that you were getting your sleep or what food you're eating kind of getting support from other uh, professionals from kind of physios gps psychologists um all of that and of having a plan in place um, so you knew kind of what you were working on and, and what your next steps were
0: mm-hmm. brilliant and this next one is quite an interesting one for me for Talking about your diagnosis. So some people really respond well to having a diagnosis and for some people it has less importance. Um, So how do you feel about that in terms of having a specific diagnosis or just working off how you're feeling? What difference does that make in terms of dealing with chronic pain for people?
1: I think that really links in with validation. Um, And I think for a lot of people with chronic pain. When you you have that pain all the time, once you get a diagnosis, it you can kind of just take a deep breath and think, oh, okay, I'm not just making all this up." And it can validate what feelings you've been going through, and and that it isn't just in your head. Because sometimes other people or yourself maybe can can question what's really happening. Um, so I think for some, getting a, a diagnosis can can just give you that validation and and the opposite can happen that if you go and have scans and you know I've heard people's stories that they have multiple scans and it comes up with nothing and and that process of invalidation then can be can be really difficult to to not understand what you're going through or why Um,
0: yeah so I also wonder if if the opposite is true and here's me showing a little bit of my vulnerability here, but um, I had a scan recently that actually showed that my hip was so much worse than I thought it was. And from a general day-to-day level of function, you know, I, I generally cope pretty well I'm quite able to do a lot of the things that I want to do. And yes, there's a day-to-day, you know, level of pain that I deal with. But then when I saw the, the x-ray and I saw that it was so much worse than I thought it was there was a bit of a a mental battle between not wanting to then become that visualization of that pain like I didn't want to then Mm. start thinking okay well it is so much worse so therefore I'm gonna let my let my and I say this inverted commas pain be feel so much worse because it's now shown in a scan so it was almost like the other way round. that mm. that was quite tricky for me to get out of and then to say actually well to be honest nothing's changed and I don't need to to let that affect my level of function I can still keep doing what I'm doing but yeah from a from a mental health point of view that was that was quite a tricky battle to see that from the other way
1: yeah that's really interesting and you've made me think back to when I was first told that I had arthritis at sort of the age of 24 25 and that i had to stop running and and it did change my behaviors and yeah you do kind of think well what if i had had just carried on running and what difference would that make so yeah i think that's really interesting and important to to see it from from the other side as well
0: yeah absolutely and you know it does it does make you think about modifying things um rather than stopping completely, you know, I was very similar to you, I was really enjoying running. Um, and then I saw this scan and I, I did ask for the scan because I knew I wanted to continue developing my running. Um, and I'd done this, you know, a couple of half marathons and you know, it was in a fair bit of pain afterwards, but I thought I really wanted to do the, the Liverpool marathon that year. And I thought, I just need to see what state it's in because I know that potentially I could be irritating this further. And I just want to see what kind of level I'm on to see how I can, make my management the best possible for the long term and I saw the results of this scan and I just thought Mm -hmm. okay pushing this to a marathon probably isn't the best idea for my hip like clinically it doesn't make a lot of sense to do it but also I know that I have been able to run fairly effectively um, for those shorter distances so it was kind of coming up with a bit of a bit of a plan for myself where it was like do you know what actually I really enjoy like the park run on a weekly basis to go out for my 5k don't get Mm. any negative impacts actually the strength benefits from doing that shorter distance have been really good for me um so yeah it's finding that kind of balance and Mm. weighing up the the mental battle between becoming the diagnosis and finding that that level between it and it's quite difficult to explain it but Mm. um it's something that I think is really important for, for people to acknowledge that it's all all right to have those thoughts either way as well. And again, the more you talk about it and say things out loud, rather than just hiding those feelings inside, when you recognize that you've heard them out loud, it can definitely help those thought processes. Do you think?
1: yeah definitely yeah even if you're not saying them to, to another person just just verbalizing them can make a difference um and i think yeah i think it's about compromise and and taking note of maybe what's what's been said in that consultation room but but not like letting it kind of take dominance and control everything um and it it's reminded me of posts that i've seen um by the hip physio where they've done studies looking at scans in people that report pain and in those that don't and um for you know there'll be completely perhaps different types of scans to what you've just had but sometimes they will they're things in a scan in people that don't have any symptoms at all and yet they're fine label tears or all sorts of other things going on um, and that was really interesting for for me and you know they went down the route of arthroscopy to repair these label tears but you know, we don't know whether that was actually causing me the pain or something else so so I guess it's kind of knowing that scans aren't always reliable either
0: yeah and the thing is and this is why it's this is why it's so interesting for me because I tell people that all the time in my job <laughs> As a video, I'm saying to people do you know what actually it's really good that we've got this this scan And it gives us an idea of visually what's going on, but what we see on the scan might have nothing to do with the symptoms that you're feeling. So it's nice to have sometimes, um, but not always clinically relevant. So Mm -hmm. the pain that people are having the experience that they're having or the lack of pain that they're having for what's on the scan, it doesn't always go together. So knowing that there's so many other factors to take into consideration where pain or lack of pain is, is concerned is, is really important. And, I just wanted people to to hear that from from me that even though I even though I know that those two aren't always related that still for me personally there was still a bit of a bit of a battle between knowing what to do with that information so please just always ask questions please ask for support please um just have those discussions and be open to talking about the stuff that feels a bit difficult and confusing Mm,
1: and thank you for sharing that from from a personal but professional side as well that that you're going through that I think that helps um helps make me feel slightly better to know that that you've got all that knowledge but it it can still get get into your head and and affect what you're thinking.
0: So speaking of professional um I know that this is something that you're you know you really have an interest in professionally with with the chronic pain side of things and you know you're sort of coming towards um end of your training as a psychologist you've just had your ethics approval for your doctorate I believe yeah yeah <laughs> so what are you what are you doing in your doctorate so my
1: doctorate is in educational psychology um so it's kind of working with children and young people from age zero right up to age 25 um particularly thinking about kind of support that they might need within school um and education um so it's it's quite different to, um, to thinking about sort of a clinical psychologist and, and, you know, we haven't had anything really in our training around chronic pain. Um, so it's been quite interesting for me to kind of make that bridge for myself. Um, and I have access to research journals through my university. So kind of utilising that to to look up health journals and things that I perhaps wouldn't usually come into. Um, but it definitely does make me kind of think about the the kind of processes and the impact that, that hip dysplasia might have on children and through their education, um, through their families and and their kind of emotional, social development, um, being in caste and all sorts of that, that kind of different things. Um, so yeah, hopefully maybe one day in the future, I can, can do some research around the kind of social and emotional impacts of having d- hip dysplasia.
0: I, I, that's exactly one of the things I was going to ask you about, because that's, you know, that specialism is um, towards child psychology, because I've had a lot of people on the podcast who have had children go through it, and a lot of the questions and concerns are, you know, I don't know whether this is impacting them more than I realise, you know, are these going to have any kind of long-term effects, you know, on their, you know, psychology um, and their development mentally and physically as they, as they develop, so it's a really interesting field um, and loads and loads of questions to ask. So, yeah, perhaps that is something that we can come back to another time and delve into a little bit more as uh, as your research and uh, education goes further. So, yeah, let's definitely come back to that another time. But um, I just want to start wrapping things up now because I've just realised that I've taken up a lot of your time today. <laughs> so thank you so, so much for coming on and talking to us in um, the healthy hips healthy minds healthy bodies week really really appreciate your time it's been absolutely wonderfully valuable so thank you so much for coming on that's all right thank you it's been a great discussion all right so we will see everybody very soon hopefully next week for the next podcast release we'll see you then. thank you so much for listening we'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest see you soon